Thanks for joining us today on the Fuel Growth Podcast. What is the right growth equation for your company? Is it pipeline? Brand? Product? Customers? Employees? Join us as we interview CEOs, entrepreneurs, and seasoned executives to explore what it takes to propel your business into growth. Joining us today is Sugata Sanyal, Chief Executive Officer with Zinfi. Over the past three decades, Sugata has worked for companies like Honeywell, Philips, and Dell, building global teams across direct and indirect channels. Sugata has a unique specialty at solving complex industry problems that create new business opportunities through channel ecosystems, which led him to found his company Zinfi in 2008. Zinfi's mission is to solve the challenge associated with selling and marketing through the channel. Welcome to the show, Sugata. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Yes, Sagata, we're lucky to have you with us today for our first episode centered around growth through a channel strategy. So thank you for joining us. Before we learn from your wisdom, could you answer just one fun question for us, please? And that is, if you had your own late night talk show, who would be your first guest? Mm. I think it definitely has to be Elon Musk with all the things oh, that's no going kidding. on right now. <laughs> I have so many questions to ask him. Does it start with what the hell? <laughs> exactly. 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 So would you consider yourself Elon fanboy or do you have some pointed advice for Mr. Musk? Not really. I mean, I did buy his car, which with all due respect, I think it's an overpriced, under-delivered car. I mean, we're still looking for that self-driving mode. For sure, I'm driving. So there is a self-driving mode. But I do not know when that full self-driving promise will become a reality. But, but you know, he's an incredibly capable individual. He has built some amazing companies. It's sad at the same time to see what's going on in Twitter. Hopefully, yeah. you know, they come to a stable place. It's an incredible asset. I have a lot of respect, but I've questioned some of it over the last few weeks. But hopefully it will yeah. all come to a good close. And hopefully, if he listens to this, he'll uh, push forward the self-driving mechanism here. I'd love to have Elon Musk on the show. That would be a, a fantastic episode. Because again, I think my first question would probably be something along the lines of, what the hell? What's going on? For me personally, he was born in June of 1971, and I was born in October of 1971. So as his career's unfolded, I've always kind of had this little bit of a, of a connection and affinity. Like, oh, he's just a couple months older than me. He's seen, he's seen the world through the same lens that I have. And I've always been very impressed with him. But I got to tell you that what's going on with Twitter just kind of begs the imagination to a certain degree. I don't think any of us could have guessed that this is where we would have been. I'm sure he knows what he's doing now. All right. Well, hey, let's get in and, and learn about Sagata here. This isn't the Elon Musk interview. This is the Sagata Samuel interview. So let's let's jump in and get to know Sagata a little bit better. So tell me a bit more about your, your career journey and then what led you to become so passionate about the channel and working with channel partners and that whole approach to business. Yeah, so I started my career in Honeywell as an engineer. My background is actually in chemical engineering. So out of grad school, when I joined Honeywell, I joined uh, their materials uh, division. At that time, it used to be called Allied Signal. But quickly, you know, I was drawn into several customer projects. I started to travel and I realized that there's a lot more fun working with customers, going out, figuring out what they need than sort of sitting behind the desk and designing pipes and pumps. And I mean, there's nothing wrong to it. You know, they, they are beautiful things that drive a big part of our economy. But so I, I moved into marketing and sales. I ran businesses in new venture area. 
So very early, I got exposed to the incredible technology portfolio that Allied Signal and then later on Honeywell had. So worked with R&D in commercialization. My last job was reporting to the chief growth officer before I left Honeywell, managing about a $900 million innovation portfolio across aerospace, automotive, and material sector. And I was also a black belt, uh, Six Sigma black belt. So I was kind of the first growth black belt, putting together programs, working with various sort of businesses. And that was an incredible exposure. And that job was in New Jersey. Then I moved to Silicon Valley a long time ago. I'm not going to say when. And then I moved to Philips. It, it was an incredible exposure working yeah. with global entities of Philips. I was in first in the components business, which would actually sold, you know, vendors like Dell and IBM and Lenovo selling from DVDs to components and everything else that went into computers. But then later on, I moved into consumer electronics. I was the team that led in the investment into e-ink, the Kindle display. We launched industry's first ebook with Sony from Philips. Wow. Uh, which actually later on created the platform for Amazon Kindle. So that was an amazing journey. That's incredible. And then I joined a smaller company called SonicWall here in Silicon Valley. I was there about four and a half to five years. And after that, I left to start Zenfi. And, and SonicWall was uh, later on acquired by Dell. And every one of those companies, you know, I've worked with channel, some form or shape, whether resellers or design houses. When you think about Honeywell or Allied Signal, you know, you work with um, control systems, aerospace systems. There are right. various sort of intermediary organizations that you work with. All those high-tech companies are building something that have supply chains behind them and have distribution chains ahead of them, right? So you, you kind of lived in that, in that channel world your whole career. Very, very complex supply chains locally and globally, some cases driven by in-country regulations and, you know, geopolitical issues. Everything that we're seeing today you know, that was there forever, right? I mean, it's, it, it seems like there's a lot of talk about deglobalization and globalization. They were all there then. And so that was my exposure to the channel and, and saw a need. We started Zinfri as an agency, as a marketing agency. We worked for some major Fortune 100 brands globally, but then realized without a software platform, you really cannot provide consistent services. So over the last, I would say, five to seven years, we have single-handedly focused on, we transitioned out of the agency business, and then we're fully focused on bringing in a SaaS automation solution, helping brands to collaborate with their partner and uh, drive demand. We definitely want to get into the topic of the, the software technology side of things. Clint and I were planning to learn what you define as a channel strategy, both historically and looking into the future, Sudhana. So we'd love for you to share with our audience some key focus areas when creating a channel strategy. I think you might even have a different term that you use. And as always, if you can share any tips that our listeners maybe could avoid doing by way of learning from your experience. So I guess with that, could we first make sure that the three of us and our listeners have a solid understanding of what channel even means to you? Yeah, so channel is very much, you know, word still in play and it will continue to be played. But traditionally, you know, when you think about the word channel, it represents something is flowing through it, right? So, so that flow through has been products and services and it has been traditionally a fulfillment channel. And I was in Singapore before COVID at the Singapore Museum. They dug up a shipwreck at the Singapore Harbor, uh, which was a 7th century ship that was going from China to Italy around the Indian coastline. Mm -hmm. And that shipwreck had artifacts from across the entire coastline. And they were 
you know, trinkets that sailors had that their families gave them with lockets and, you know, whatnot. And that was the beginning of channel. People bought stuff in, you know, one place, sold it to another place, added value to it. At that time, carrying had its own value. But since then, I mean, if you go back to Mesopotamian civilization or people who got in a boat, went to another continent, they carried stuff. So channel it has always been there forever. You know, you can almost argue at the advent of human civilization. But in this decade or the last few decades, we have referred to channel more of a fulfillment channel as a sales channel. So companies that manufacture things and don't sell direct, they need third-party organizations to go sell. They would create what's called channel partners, the, you know, other organizations mm-hmm. that would carry inventory, drive demand, fulfill them. But what has happened is that fulfillment is a great function of demand. And demand is a function of customers. And the nature of demand, how customers buy, has been rapidly changing. And so with the advent of internet over the last three decades and proliferation of, you know, how buyers buy and fragmentation, going back to the word, I think, Clint, you're talking about value chain, things have changed dramatically. So, for example, we're talking about Elon Musk. Let's talk about electric vehicles, right? They have had an incredible vision re-architecting the entire value chain. I mean, if you look at success for Tesla, uh, the industry talks about how integrated that solution is, right? They manufacture their batteries. They manufacture even to their, they design their chipsets, right? Of course, they write their software. They may get some components like the chassis and a few other things from somewhere else, but they are re-architecting the entire value chain. Uh, they are Ford Channel. So people who sell to an automotive uh, manufacturer like Ford, uh, or GM or Nissan or any other, you know, company, the players are changing. So therefore, when you're launching a product like electronic vehicles, you know, electric vehicles, EVs are greatly driven by country regulations. So you have governing bodies that they, you know, set emission standards. Uh, they define, you know, some of the safety standards, how it's sold, how it's supported, how it's serviced. So. The notion of fulfillment has completely changed. So when you take a look at something like a Tesla, it's sold direct. I mean, I went to a parking lot to pick up my car. My next car was delivered in my driveway. I didn't go to a dealer. So the the fulfillment mechanism for Tesla is completely different. So Tesla, you could argue, doesn't have a front-end channel. But what Tesla does have, back-end channels of suppliers and providers. So when you look at EV as a market segment, the broader term to use is ecosystem. You have players who are, you know, Elon Musk himself is a big influencer, but in addition to that, everybody that's talking about Tesla, you go to YouTube, there's so many YouTubers are promoting their experience on Tesla, right? They're great influencers. They get paid on Plex. Then you have people, you know, in the governing body. It's a different kind of dealer room, right? It's it's YouTube channels by individual advisors as opposed to walking onto a showroom floor on El Camino Avenue, right? Is that what exactly. You're and then you schedule a drive through in your app. You go to a showroom. They give you the car. You drive around and you drop it back, right? So how that servicing. So today the word channel is definitely there, but it's related to more fulfillment, but to sell a product to a customer who is buying very differently, you know, searching online, watching on YouTube, chatting with groups, then ordering it, trying it, maybe sending it back, that entire life cycle of the customer journey has changed. 
So people that are touching that customer is no longer the vendor, just by the vendor itself. There are multiple people influencing, you know, what you look at, what you buy, how you try it, you know, how you talk about it, how you upgrade it. So all of these players together are now considered to be this, this broader term called ecosystem. That's actually influencing consumption of something all the way from promotion mm. to consumption and upgrade. You know, as I was thinking about the front end, I, I, the question started forming in my mind that in today's internet-driven economy with, with all this information at our fingertips and our ability to find anything, see anything, experience anything so quickly, do you need the channel? Is the channel under attack? Is channel distribution and channel reselling something that's going away because the, the internet is disintermediating it. But you, you described a different answer. You're describing an evolution of the channels, what I think I was hearing in there, right? Yeah, very much so. I think certain part of the channel is dying because it needs to re reform and re-architect itself because of the solutions are disappearing. I mean, when you think about oil and gas as a big sector, right? Anything we can look around us has plastic in them. And, you know, there's a supply chain of that. People create plastic out of oil and gas, and then they put things together and sell it. So that's not going to disappear overnight. Right. But when it comes to energy related to oil and gas, you know, those trucks and tankers and, and the gas stations, they're going to disappear, right? Because you take your aftermarket. If you look at the entire automotive sector where you would drive your car to the local auto mechanic to change oil filters and whatnot, that's going to go away. So that part of the channel will disappear. But there are other parts of channels that will evolve, like the way we're talking about influencers, right? A lot of the product today are sold through word of mouth because the buyers are going online and searching. You no longer have to drive to a local store to find what's on the shelf. And maybe you heard an ad during a sitcom, therefore you relate the two together, right? By the time when a buyer goes to a shelf, he or she pretty much knows what they're going to get. Therefore, at the point of sale, the switching is a price-driven switching versus a value-driven switching, right? So the role of the channel has greatly changed. So channel is going to be here, but the broader ecosystem at a play, you know, at a much bigger play and re-architecting of the value chain. And, and we're at an incredible inflection point, even though the media is all doom and gloom about what's happening with the economy and the inflation and the war. But the reality is, our global economy is getting re-architected with a digital backbone. And it's going to be green. It's going to be very likely local. It's going to be super connected. And it's going to have a consumer base. When you look at the Gen Zs where they're coming on board, they're buying a very different way. So, so I think we're going to see formation of different clusters of influencers and solution providers that didn't exist before. But they're also at the same time, mm -hmm. others who are so-called from the old school will disappear. What I'm hearing, I think, is a channel partner whose entire purpose is to help a customer buy, probably not needed as much anymore, right? The, the act of buying is pretty simple and straightforward for all kinds of products these days, given e-commerce and, and the internet as a whole. But what you do with what you buy, how you put it to work, how you get value out of it, that's where channel partners can bring a ton of value to the table because they can teach you or show you, guide you on how to put to work the thing that you bought. Is, is that a fair way of describing it? It is only one way of describing it. I mean, if you take, you know, what you just said, and maybe from a visualization perspective, we can visualize the two by two matrix. On the X axis, we have solution types, things that are transactional, toothpaste, or a switch, or a router, or something that's very transactional. It doesn't require 
a lot of knowledge to buy. A risk of purchase is low. And then you go to the same x-axis on the, you know, for the right, it's a more complex buy, right? You're buying infrastructure, whether at a social level, laying out railways or transportation infrastructure to all the way enterprise infrastructure. And then you look at on the y-axis, number of solutions required. Toothpaste is toothpaste. You don't need anything with it, maybe just a toothbrush to complete it. But if you go up on the y-axis, if you're looking at an infrastructure level, then you have multiple layers of solutions to it, right? Going back to the car, you need batteries, you need chipsets, you need motors, you need, you know, all of the above. So depending on how finished and finite the product is that can be looked at as a transactional, the influence of the channel is less. The buyer has more control. More complex the solution is, more influence the channel has because you consult, you design, you deploy, you upgrade, you maintain. Therefore, channel plays. And then the organization, when you look at something like an IBM Global Services, they're a channel for you know, computers and chipsets and hardwares. And they would put together a factory manufacturing floor all together. There, they have a great influence on you know, every component that goes in there, right? But if I'm a reseller that just carrying a PC in my trunk to go sell into a small business, that business is not there anymore. So I think we're seeing evolution of more complex solutions where channel plays a very, very important role in selecting and designing and defining. But also on the other hand, the buyers are smarter today. They have a lot more information in their hand because they want to do this research on their own. Therefore, you know, things that tend to be transactional and used to be sold from somebody else is going direct. Got it. That paints a good picture for me. Now, maybe shifting gears a little bit from the why the channel, what does the channel do for you, that sort of thing. And let's, let's talk a little bit more about building a channel. An area that you've got certainly a great deal of expertise is bringing technology to the table in terms of building a channel, technology that helps with collaboration, I think is what I heard in your intro there. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what different types of strategies or tools or technologies end up delivering the highest impact when driving growth through the channel. Marketing campaigns, compensation models, specific tools that does it. What really delivers the highest impact for growth? Okay, so there's a lot there. So let me try to answer your questions in layers. So let's go back to the first question you asked, why a channel? So let me go back to use the example that I was using at the beginning of the discussion is that that shipwreck in Singapore Harbor, you know, that they found that was carrying inventory from China to across the India coastline, you know, to all the way to Italy. The number one purpose of that channel was reach. You were trying to reach a set of buyers that you cannot go by yourself. That is very much there today. That was there yesterday. What is also there today is the consultative nature of when you're deploying something very, very complex, but you require multiple pieces to be put together that you cannot figure out on your own. Therefore, that is also there. So take these two dimensions. In one side, you're shipping in a pottery, very transactional thing, you know, putting on a boat and going into another piece. So the transactional pieces today are these intermediated by internet because you can order them direct. You go to Alibaba.com and you can get everything from China delivered to your doorstep. You may have to buy in 50 pieces, but you can get it. You don't need a reseller for that, right? But if you're trying to add a room to your house, you need a general contractor who is going to have an influence of all the materials that they're pulling together, right? And building flows through a channel. And you may have to get a permit the local county plays a role or local city plays a role. So 
depending on what your product is and who you're trying to reach, channel may or may not play a role. So for example, if I simplify, like the Alibaba example, if I am selling Alibaba is a channel to somebody in China manufacturing a product. They happen to be an e-tail channel online, right? Selling direct, they're getting a margin just like the way Amazon is. But if I'm a software vendor, I'm selling directly to, you know, someone like Sugar, right? Or our product. For selling directly to a buyer, I may not need a channel partner to go sell that directly. But depending on the complexity of the deployment, like when I think about the incredible infrastructure you have, the solutions you provide, I can automate end-to-end using a sugar infrastructure, but I may not have the knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll look for a system integrator that can come in my design, my front end, my marketing, my sales processes, work with those functions, design the forms and the flows and the approval routing, all of those things, right? So suddenly the system integrator for sugar or same exact thing for Zinthi, they may not be a fulfillment channel, but they're a consultative channel. Mm-hmm. Without that, the customer will never have the full product or full experience that uh, that they need to have. So, so the first thing first is channel is about scale. Channel is not something you just go by partner on the side just for the sake of having a channel. And channel also has an intrinsic cost. You know, just like the way when you build a product, it takes six months, nine months, twelve months, eighteen months before that product hits the shelf and you can see return you have to make an investment in the channel. So it is one of the most strategic decisions, you know, companies and, and leadership can take whether to go direct and whether to go by a channel. If I take a run rate business, let's say, you know, your marketing cost is five to 10 points and your sales cost is 20, 25 points. Overall, at a PL level, you're staying less than 30 points. In the beginning, if you're trying to develop a channel, your channel development cost and fulfillment costs together 50, 60, 70 points. It may, may not make sense at all to develop a channel. But on the other hand, when you're selling a complex solutions, where you're building competency, building stickiness, grabbing that ground, that boat, that or ship, you know, they had routes that they owned, right? Therefore, they controlled the flow of the goods. So same exact thing when you have a set of partners around the world that have high level of domain experience, whether manufacturing, agriculture, mining, pick a vertical, right? Because channel is the last mile play. Because since you can't go direct, you need somebody to fulfill the trade or complete the solution. You need somebody in that last mile. And that is stickiness. So channel plays essentially two Road one is cost reduction. You reach more people at a lower cost eventually, not in the beginning. And second, you control competitive penetration into those marketplaces because your presence. So when you look at most of the ecosystems today, you know one of the um, whether in the software space or in the hardware space. I was talking about my own experience in 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 Honeywell. When you look at aerospace. Aerospace, the entire supply chain is very, very captive because it's so regulatory driven. The first thing is aerospace is safety before you think about anything, right? So therefore, every supplier, right, whether national security perspective or public safety perspective, has to have some level of certification. That knowledge into that entire ecosystem, once you get your product in, 
is very difficult for someone to displace you, right? And those life cycles of the product tend to be, you know, an engine lasts for 30 years, right? It's not like a toothpaste. So, so, so it all, all yeah. depends on what you're trying to achieve, scale you're trying to achieve, how you want to play. But channel has a very, very important role to play. Can we talk about the, the training for, for partners or I'm thinking any business that's going to be partnering or part of your channel fulfillment, part of your ecosystem? You just hit on something that I think is really important, which is the training or certification. What workflow automation tools or other technologies have you seen work really well at optimizing the partnership between a business and its partners in that regard, specific to training or certifications? We hear about this all day long from our customer base and their partners, right? In one side, internet has been an amazing enabler from a technology platform perspective. It has opened up so many routes, but it also on the other side, it has caused fragmentation an explosion of information. And we're all super busy, super loaded through, you know, whether social medias, whether direct contact, calls, engagement. So partners are overwhelmed and the rate of change is speeding up. But you think about 10 years, right? California is supposed to stop selling gas-powered cars in 2030. And we're, we're sixth largest economy in the world. So that transition, the channel has to bear with it. So you have to recruit people, you have to train them, you have to enable them, and you can't just bring them into so-called a partner portal, open them up to millions of information, have them figure out what's in there, what they need, right? So one of the big things that's happening with the explosion of this word called ecosystem, where you have various types of partners, you have influencers, you have consultants, you have designers, you have people who actually carry products, people who deploy, who upgrade, then you have people who are impacting regulatory bodies or standards committee. You have all these people in an ecosystem, right? And if you as a vendor, you want to maximize your presence and capture, you know, unfair share of your profit from the market, you have to have engagement with each of those players in a very unique way because nobody has time to waste. Yeah. In the old ways, you would open up a portal and it would say, go at it, figure out what you need. That's gone. So this notion of along with the ecosystem, and we're driving a lot of it, conversation with customers and analysts is called hyper-personalization and it's tied to pathways. So if I'm, you know, a consumer influencer, I'm selling cosmetic or whatever, how I need to be onboarded by a consumer brand is very simple, but I still need brand control. Therefore, the assets that I promote through my TikTok or YouTube channel need to come from the vendor, right? so that I don't distort putting up things and destroy the brand. So therefore, how I onboard an affiliate partner or an influencer in the consumer space, or you also have influencers in the business space, let's say a storage in a consultant, someone who is designing you know, storage infrastructure for IT. It could be just a blogger that's writing on various types of storage, and that person is placing products in his or her writing. That's an influencer. How you onboard that blogger is very different than a system integrator or a manufacturer or a partner who is deploying is different. So one of the main thing that we are seeing and, you know, and that's what we exist is to really enable broader the channel or broader the ecosystem, more types of partners you have, more hyper-personalized pathways, how you onboard, how you train, how you incentivize how you performance manage, how you even transition out partners that are not performing. They need to be completely and dynamically configured, deployed, managed, right? And that varies by country. So if you take a workflow that works in the US and North America, 
because of German regulations, may not work at all in Germany. So you have to redesign the pathway completely different. It sounds like there would be a, a pretty significant investment behind these pathways that you're describing in what you just said. Someone would need to prepare, deploy, make sure also that your partners or your affiliates are going through the pathways and are completing them, are learning the content. Is that fair to say that that's a pretty big investment for a business, albeit a worthwhile one? I mean, as I said all the way in the beginning, when Clint asked, you know, relevance of the channel, and I said, you know, it's about scale, it's about building competitive barriers. Mm -hmm. So it's a very strategic decision, right? So when you're investing into building out an ecosystem program, you have to really think through. The amazing thing is because of the cloud, for platforms like Sugar and platforms like ours, the actual IT infrastructure cost, like SaaS automation, is a fraction of your channel investment or ecosystem investment. Most mm -hmm. of it goes into designing the strategies, like who are you going to recruit? How are you going to onboard? What is your business proposition for that type of ecosystem partner? Right. So you have to design the programs. You have to design the processes, which may vary by countries. Sure. And you have to have the people infrastructure in place, right? You look at, you know, a typical Zenfree Sugar combined deployment may cost anywhere between $25,000 to a couple hundred thousand dollars. But your overall investment in the ecosystem could be in millions. So the reason we exist is to connect into systems like Sugar that allows customers to manage their business processes on the direct side end to end. We augment that ability on the partner ecosystem side by giving them visibility, predictability, and control. Because one thing that we know for sure is gonna, not going to happen in 2023, the Fed is no longer going to print free money. So every CEO that's out there, they're looking at their operating costs, looking at their using your word investment and trying to rationalize, right? Mm -hmm. So where we enable and platform like ours enable, you reach a broader audience at a lower cost with better control and you build partner loyalty because you're putting them through personalized pathways. So they are hyper efficient in what they do, how they take care of the customer that they're either influencing or serving. Kind of pulling that together in a couple of thoughts there. I asked you earlier, can you name off some specific techniques or tools or that sort of thing that you've seen be very effective? And, and you answered, I think it's less about a particular tool or technique, but it's more about putting the right strategy in place for that particular partner? What's the thing that's going to unlock growth for that partner? How do you help that partner drive sales? How do you help that partner get in front of more of their end customers with the right information at the right time? So you've got to really focus on that enablement for that hyper-personalization of the enablement for that partner. And that's the best way of approaching, especially in a world where I think you were describing how partner companies are being inundated with information from all kinds of different vendors. How do you stand out and solve their particular problems at that moment in time? That's the strategy that's going to drive growth. Did I, did I hear that right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you have to be relevant to everybody you touch from a business proposition-wise, and you have to be hyper-efficient in serving their needs and enabling them. So if you're selling a transactional product and you have a whole bunch of people that carry your product and make a few points, how you serve them, it's a simple you know, partner portal. You bring them in, give them price lists, sales tools, and you're done with it. But if you're working with somebody who is on a long sales cycle, doing proof of concept, you know, multi-month deployment, then how you serve that partner through the entire lifecycle engagement with the end customer, the tools are going to be a full-blown partner relationship management platform, right? 
So the, the key is to find a platform that is flexible enough because if you're a large, complex organization, chances are you have all of the above. You're selling transactional product, but you're also selling highly complex product. So you need a platform that can address both ends of the spectrum. Therefore, from a partner perspective, they get a hyper-personalized, relevant experience. Sugathi, you had mentioned something earlier that I didn't want to move past without talking about it briefly, and that was around controlling the brand. Mm. I've seen that it is yeah. it is hard to present a brand, especially when you have so many partners involved or, or members involved in your ecosystem. Aside from the technology, the things like onboarding and ongoing training and certifications, do you have any suggestions on what businesses can do to maintain brand reputation and consistency as they're bringing on more folks in their ecosystem or maintaining what they have today? Yeah, so brand, you know, essentially at a broad sense, as Peter Drucker used to say, is a fulfillment of a promise. And so an organization promises something to a customer and it has a visual representation to the logos and the identities, but they, it has a physical representation of fulfillment of the product. Going back to the tongue-in-cheek comment we're making about full self-driving car, you know, it's an incredible brand of the Tesla, but when it comes to fulfillment of that, it's not there, right? So it's very important when a brand goes through the channel, it makes sure it promises a carry through, you know, to its true intent mm. and can be fulfilled. So for example, making sure at a very transactional level, the product specification, right? No price gouging. So the prices are restricted. Certain government, you know, uh, requirements forces you to maintain manufacturer suggested retail price. Sure. So therefore, you know, there's a part of brand that's very transactional. They said logos, how you look, how you feel, in, then pricing and functionalities. But then there's another part of the brand, which is consumption driven. As you're using the product, what is your experience like, right? If you have an issue, if you call the vendor, do you get support? If you're not buying from the vendor, when you call the partner, do you get support? Is the partner qualified? Because there's a churn at the partner organization. So when it comes to brand consistency, while channel gives you reach, it also makes it very, very difficult for you to control the brand promise. Therefore, you know, if you've seen, you know, Starbucks motto has been, they go direct. They don't have franchises. You go to the other hand from McDonald's, they're predominantly franchises. So depending on the solution or the product you're selling, more it's experience centric, brand matters the most because you need to control every piece of it. More, you know, it's a transaction centric than control of the brand, control of the, you know, offer becomes easier. So we see a great variety of that in our customer base where they're selling transacting product, how they onboard partner, how they certify partner, what tools they give tend to be very simple. But if they're selling a solution, they control the materials that the partner share, the email that they go out. And there's automation tools that we provide that allow the vendor to control to the nth level of detail, what the partner can or cannot do using their brand material, right? That's on the transactional part. But on the other side, you can also have what's called closed distribution. You don't sell a product through every partner you have. You sell your product only to a set of partner that is certified to sell certain product in certain segment. And that is part of the brand uh, control also. So therefore, as I said, channel is an incredible place. Ecosystem possibly is the better way to you know, define it because just like biological ecosystem, the diversity of it is, is huge, but then you have to design programs to address every aspect of it and brand being at the center of it, but it comes down to fulfillment of that promise and how you control that promise. Well, let's take that as a chance to talk maybe about the traps that companies 
that are building out a channel could could stumble into. Let's hear some of your 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 hard won advice here. What are a few things you've seen go wrong when working with or through partners, and and how to avoid that? Yeah, so so it really very greatly, if I may simplify, let let's talk about emerging companies, companies that are starting up, growing fast. You know, they have one set of challenges versus companies which are established. You know, Fortune hundred brands. They have another set of you know challenges. So let's talk about the companies that are growing with a single product or multi-product uh, companies. One of the mistakes we have seen is that without figuring out the direct fulfillment model, some things cannot be sold direct. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping those aside. They have to be sold through some sort of a distribution network because of local permits, local reach. You know, the, the ship that I talked about, if it's just out of reach, you need somebody to carry your product. But if you have an alternative to sell direct, we see, especially companies that are starting up and growing fast, they think the way to reduce cost of sales is by building a partner network. Probably the most obvious starting point when you're thinking about why do I want to start a channel? It's cheaper for me than if I built my own, but I think you're about to tell me that's not necessarily the case, right? Yeah, and especially, you know, if you're trying to sell your product globally, if you don't have a global support infrastructure, you have localization issues, language issues, you know, there are other complexity that come in. You may be better off hiring some direct sales and marketing people carrying your product in those markets, establishing those workflows before you bring partners on board who will only get, you know, frustrated and, you know, sort of spread a bad name. So therefore, I think it's very important for organizations that are growing fast. And we have seen several of our customers that brought us in for partner management. They have only done so once they had a very established direct go-to-market and they understood what the end customer really needed. And what pieces of that solution that they're delivering could be augmented or replaced by a third-party organization. So that, that's on a fast-growing organization. So for established organization, one of the main areas of challenges that happen is when large companies buy small or mid-sized companies. Because what happens is you're rolling those organizations over. And if those organizations have channel programs in place or partner program in place, too often what happens is a lot of those credits or a lot of the ways of working, you know, they don't really get carried over to these large organizations. So in the process, if let's say you're, you're a multi-billion dollar organization, we just acquired a 50 to $100 million company that predominantly sells to the channel and you roll them up into this broader, big, you know, enterprise, those partners get frustrated and end up quitting and end up going to a competitor. So integration of those smaller organizations into a broader organization and rolling the partner program over over a multi-year cycle is absolutely critical. So we see, and both of these cases, you know, I talk less about tools because that's the last piece. It's all about strategy. Like, who are you going to bring in? Why should they do business with you? How do you replicate? So just like the way, and if you're starting a business, you go to a VC for funding, they would say, how many people have the problem? You know, how big is the problem? How much are they going to pay for it? Can you serve that consistently across everybody that you have the, you know, that has the problem, right? Then only they will fund. The same exact way CEOs and CFOs need to look at the channel organization before they go roll out, saying, which partners are you going to bring on? What are their needs? How are you going to serve? How are you going to fulfill? Because before you touch the end customer, you have to make sure these middle entities that you just brought in, they are happy. They want to work with you, right? So in both of these entities where you're starting up, you need to be cautious and careful and thoughtful about who you're engaging with and how you're going to market in what pieces. Mm-hmm. And existing large organizations, 
need to say, I just pay, you know, spend multi-billion dollar acquiring a company that has velocity to the channel. Let's not mess that up. And then tools and techniques and deployment when it comes to our platform, integrating with yours or integrating any other third party, that's easy. Because once you know what to do, you can take any configurable platform like ours, you can, you know, design, deploy and roll it out very quickly. But most people tend to trip in those per strategic sort of selection, you know, uh, alignment from an overall broad business perspective. Yeah, excellent reminders, especially the, the bit about the integration as companies buy out. I think that that's just another thing to add on to part of your integration planning being that you want to make sure you're considering the channel or the ecosystem. Well, I think that the, the main thing I was hearing in there is companies that think about building the channel as a cost savings mechanism first are probably setting themselves up for failure. Right. If your if your whole thought process is around go to market on the cheap, that's probably what you're going to get in the end. And instead, if if you're investing in the channel to get to buyers that you wouldn't be able to get to otherwise, but you're going to invest in it, you're going to make it real, you're going to train people, you're going to certify people, you're going to help them knock down the barriers, then you're going to have a successful channel strategy. So that's definitely what I was hearing in there. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you have to begin with the end in mind, right? You have to begin with the end customer in mind. You know, Always. what that experience is and how you piece together with other organizations. Unless that's clear, channel or partners make it even more complex than it needs to be. Well, thank you so much, Sigal. This has been really helpful. I'm learning a lot. I do have one final question for you that we ask everyone, and I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be, but we'll ask anyway. Where can our listeners find you and learn more about you? So from a company perspective, the best place to go to Zinfi.com, Z-I-N-F-I.com. And from a personal perspective, I tend to write posts quite a bit on LinkedIn. So they can go look up my name, Sugata Seniel. They'll find me there. And hopefully they can also find us in Sugar Outfitters as an application partner for Sugar CRM. That's right. Coming soon. Well, fantastic, Sugata. Thank you so much for your, your wisdom, your time, all of the insights that you shared with us today. This has been a masterclass on how to build a channel-led growth strategy. Thank you for your time and, and wish you all the best in these final days of 2022 as we go into 2023. Thank you very much. 